Hey, glad you could join us today on RK Ministries podcast, where each week we engage culture with biblical truth by sharing a message of truth and hope from a biblical perspective. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and hope that you enjoy today as you join us on this episode of RK Ministries podcast. Well, if you have your Bibles with you or your digital device, follow me over to Exodus chapter 20 once again as we continue our series through the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, God's moral law. We'll begin, we'll be reading again verses 1 through 8, where we're going to extend to verse 11 today, so we'll get the fourth, the totality of the fourth commandment. Uh, in our text because it is the fourth commandment that we'll be looking at uh, this morning. So Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 11. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is with you, or within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath Sabbath day, and made it holy. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, and again we thank you, uh, just for the privilege that we have of being, being able to come here and to worship you. We thank you, Lord, for the revelation of your word, that you have not hid yourself from us, that you have gone out of your way to show us who you are through your son and through the revelation of the written word. We ask, Lord, that as we endeavor to understand your word today, that you would give us ears to hear, minds that would understand, help us see how it is that we can apply the moral principles of this command in our life today. And in so doing, demonstrate to the world around us, the character of the God that we serve. And as always, Lord, may you use this vessel to bring glory and honor to your holy name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, although I am, without a doubt, a young book, I am old enough to know or remember days in my life where there were still a majority of places that were closed on a Sunday. There were places and communities where we just rolled up the sidewalks on a Sunday, right? Probably one of the most uh, interesting 
encounters I have had with a person that deals with how we treat uh, Sunday and what we ought to do and what we ought not do on Sunday uh, as, a, as a Christian is when we lived in Dothan, we were, we were living in a, in a home that we were uh, attempting to buy uh, in, in the south side of Dothan. And the gentleman, we were godly, great gentlemen, okay? It's not nothing to denigrate him in any way. It's just an interesting thing that happened to me as it relates to this concept of how we ought to live and act on Sunday. Well, close to that property was a pond. And you guys may not know this about me, but I do like to fish. Now, I'm not a professional bass fisherman. I don't have a big old boat or whatever. I grew up fishing off the bank with my granny with a cane pole, right? When she spit her little snuff on the worms and dumped it off in the... And so that's how I grew up fishing, okay? We couldn't afford boats and things like that. And so, you know, I love to fish in ponds and, and things like that. And so, hey... I'd slip over there and fish in the pond. He had no problem with me fishing on the pond. Well, one Sunday afternoon, because we didn't have evening service, one Sunday afternoon, my brother-in-law and I, who also likes to fish, we slipped over to the pond, caught us a few fish, brought them back to the house, and we're cleaning them. And next thing I know, he comes riding up on his vehicle, just a chewing me. He was laying into me about fishing in his pond on Sunday. He didn't even allow his sister to fish in his pond on Sunday. So I told him, hey, I don't want any problems with it. If it's that big a deal, I won't ever fish in your pond again on Sunday. All right? That leads to this idea of how we deal with this commandment. Because it is probably of the ten, one of the most controversial ones of the list. So much so that there are those people who would say, hey, we don't even need to worry about that one anymore. All right? We just look at the other nine. Okay, so there's really three major groups or umbrella categories that people fit in when we deal with the issue of the fourth commandment, this idea of honoring the Sabbath day. Now, we know Sabbath had become the Jesus in creation. We'll talk about that. Jesus did was there in creation, John chapter 1. But, but God in creation said the seventh day, which, is, which was Saturday, so in that sense, the Sabbath became to be understood as Saturday. And we'll talk more about that in, in a moment. But literally, the word has to do with this idea of rest. Okay, that, that's really the heart of this word is, is, is rest. So we'll, we'll unpack what all that means. But how do we deal with it? Three main categories. There are those who say, we don't deal with that. That's Old Testament stuff. Uh, it has no bearing on us anymore. It was never mentioned in the New Testament. The only problem with that is uh, that... There are a couple other commandments that were never mentioned in the New Testament, like the Ten Commandments, never mentioned specifically in the New Testament. Do we just say, hey, don't worry about not covenant part anymore. It doesn't apply to us. No. So we've got to have a better argument than that. But three, three major categories. One, you have antinomianism. Antinomianism is, <clears throat> uh, means against the law or in the sense that opposed to the law. And, and then, I'm not using this as a derogatory term, okay? So there are those who use it as a derogatory term. Term, In some ways, it ought to be used in a way that describes the way a person lives. They live a life that is antinomian, that is anamas. Namas is law. Uh, it's against God's law. This is a technical term that means there are groups of Christians who are antinomian in the sense that they think that the law of God has no bearing absolutely on us. Even the Ten Commandments has no bearing on us today. Well, obviously, you know I'm not part of that group or I wouldn't be doing a series through the Ten Commandments. Right? I think the Ten Commandments has some implication in our life and that 
as a matter of fact, that we are bound by, all men everywhere are bound by this moral code of God because it represents the character of who God is. And so that's why we got to deal with this fourth commandment and see how, how it fits in our life. The second group of people are what I call Christian Sabbatarians because they're the people who say, hey, not only should you obey the fourth commandment, but you better do it on Saturday and not Sunday, right? Now, we know Seventh-day Adventists, that they fall into that kind of category. Uh, there are those who say that it's Saturday. But uh, under that same group, there are those who would say, no, Saturday is not the day. Sunday, the first day of the week, has become the Christian Sabbath. But you better observe it the same way that the Jews observed the Sabbath, just do it on Sunday. Now, we know, and we don't have time to argue about it or argue it this morning, that as New Testament believers... This idea of gathering together and worshiping God did shift from Saturday to Sunday, mainly because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And throughout church history, history bears out that believers met on the first day of the week to honor the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're not going to argue that today. We're going to assume that most of us would agree that we ought to worship on Sunday because that's the Lord's day, as John calls it in the book of Revelation. But there are those who say, yes, you worship on Sunday, but you honored the Sabbath on Sunday the same way that the Jews did with all don't go anywhere, don't cook. Vodabakum uh, tells this story about his, his, one of his encounters in Israel. He was leading a tour and he was in a hotel. And in Israel, in the hotel, they have what is called a Shabbat elevator. It's the Sabbath elevator. elevator. And so you get in, he, he, he didn't realize which elevator he was getting on. Uh, he hit the call button for an elevator to come down, but the Shabbat elevator came down and he just went in because the door opened. Well, the thing about the Shabbat ele elevator is that it opens the door on every floor. So the implication is you can ride the elevator on the Sabbath. You just can't push the buttons because that would be work. So he had to, every floor it stopped and opened the door. There are those who say no work on the Sabbath. If you want to have a Sunday meal, well, you do it on Saturday and you just warm it up for Sunday, right? You don't do anything regarding work on Sunday. Well, I don't fall into that category and I don't think the Bible demands that of us. And we'll talk more about that as we get into this. And then the uh, third group is, I think, is where I fall and probably majority of you fall in, to some degree. All right, and that's that the Sabbath and the fourth commandment in this way has a moral binding on us, and we need to honor the moral implications of the Sabbath as we come together and worship the Lord on the Lord's day. And so that's what we want to unpack uh, this morning because we need to understand that even though all of these laws, hopefully I've made this plain to you, and if not, maybe I can make it plain now. The Ten Commandments are a summation of God's covenant with Israel, okay? And if you read past these Ten Commandments in this very chapter, you will begin to see that all of these commandments are categories, and God uses each one of these categories in these commandments to unfold for Israel the ceremonial and the civil aspects of the law. And so in that way, the law of God, the covenant with Israel, has three aspects to it, right? It has the civil aspect to it. It has the ceremonial, which has to do with worship and those kinds of things. The civil is, don't eat this, you can eat that, right? 
the ceremonial had to do with the sacrificial system and how they, how they come to worship God. And then you had the moral aspect of it. Well, what we believe, hopefully what you believe in understanding this, is that when Christ came, he came to fulfill the law in totality, right? And when he came, he fulfilled every aspect of God's law, and he satisfied what the civil requirements were pointing to. He satisfied what the ceremonial requirements pointed to. So those things do not apply to us anymore. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself says, eat whatever you want to eat. In my paraphrase, right? He, he, he done away with the food laws. Right? So those things are not binding on us anymore. They were binding on Israel as a theocracy in their context, in their culture, under the old covenant, in the, in the world that they were in. It set them apart unto God in that way. For us, what is binding are the moral implications of these ten categories because they represent the character of God. They represent the holiness of God. And so when Christ comes and he fulfills the law, he doesn't do away with the holy character of God. He shows to us in a, in a brighter and more precise way what the holy character of God is and how it is we ought to live in light of that. And you remember Paul Paul picks up on that and he says when we come to faith in Christ, it's only then that we can truly see the holy character of God manifest in our life by the righteous requirements of the law being fulfilled in the way that we live. So in that way, the Ten Commandments has this binding element on us because it represents the character of God and it tells us how we ought to live in this world to represent the character and the holiness of God. And so we do what we do in regard to the commandments not to be made right with God, but because we have been made right with God and we are living in a way that represents the character of God. We do what we do because of who he is and what he's done. And I think we see that pattern, especially in the first four commandments. And so if you looked at the beginning of chapter 20, you would see this pattern begin. The Lord says in the first commandment, starting in verse one, in the introduction part of it, he says, I am... Therefore, you shall not. And then in the next commandment, we see that the Lord says, you shall not because I am. I am, so you shall not worship any other God or have any other God before me. You shall not create any carved images because I am a jealous God. And then the pattern continues. You shall not because I will. You remember that? You shall not take the Lord's name in vain because I will not hold him harmless or guiltless who takes the Lord's name in vain. And then today, you shall because I did. You shall honor the Sabbath and keep it holy because I created it to be holy. And so we do what we do because of who God is and what God did. And therefore, I think these things are continually binding on us. So we've got to unpack this commandment and say, how is it that I, as a New Testament, New Covenant believer in Christ who, are not, who is not under the bondage of the law, still honor the moral implications that's represented in this fourth commandment? This fourth, we'll, we'll talk about, I'm trying to get ahead of myself. There's two, two main things that we're going to ask and answer today. One, how must we understand the fourth commandment? 
And two, how must we apply the fourth commandment in our life? If these commandments are binding on us, how does that fit in with New Covenant uh, theology? And hopefully we'll answer that uh, today. All right, very quickly. How must we understand the fourth commandment? One, we need to look at the rationale behind the fourth commandment. Why is it in this Decalogue? Why is it there? Why didn't God just leave that one out and use it specifically for Israel and make no ambiguity about the fourth commandment? Well, there's a reason that it's in the fourth commandment because it's the sign of the covenant God made with Moses, right? The Mosaic covenant, it is the sign of that covenant. And the Ten Commandments is a summary of the God's covenant. And in that summary is this sign. And it is these commandments that were put into the Ark of the Covenant, right? That showed them this is the binding obligation of this covenant between you and between me. And so we see this pattern of God giving covenants and signs in scripture. What about Noah? When the, when the judgment came with the flood, what did God say to Noah after all of that was over with and Noah and his family were back on dry land? He says, I put my sign in the cloud, right? I put my bow in the cloud and it is a sign between me and and he didn't say just Noah. He said all the earth, right? You, you can find that in Genesis chapter 9, verse 13. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth, that he would not judge the world with a flood again. Now, he's going to judge it with fire later on. But he will not judge the earth with a flood. And how do we know that? How do we know God's promise is there? We see the rainbow, right? I know we use, people have usurped that today, but that's God's promise to us that he will not judge this world with a flood again. We see it in the Abrahamic covenant. The sign for the Abrahamic covenant is circumcision. God gave that to Abraham as a sign, and it was carried over into uh, the nation of Israel. He says in Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And then we see that same thing in this covenant with Moses and the nation of Israel in Moses' day. In Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 through 13. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you through your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. So specifically, it was there to set Israel apart unto the Lord, to distinguish them from everyone else. And now we've talked about this idea of the ceremonial aspect of the law, the fourth commandment, but we need to look at it just a little bit more and then maybe transition to why that's not binding on us anymore because the ceremonial aspect of this fourth commandment, the civil aspect of it, was done away with when Christ came. Okay, and we're free from that, but we're not free from the moral implication of the fourth commandment. And so we've seen the idea of setting them apart, Exodus 31, 13, I, the Lord, sanctify you. Uh, but in Christ, this was fulfilled, right? In Christ, we, uh, we find this ultimate rest in Christ. Look, look at Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 14, or at least write it down in your margins or on your notepad. For we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So if Christ came and fulfilled the ceremonial requirements of the law, 
And we as believers come to faith in Jesus Christ, we share in Christ and we share in the completed and finished work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, these ceremonial laws are no longer binding on us. The ceremonial aspect of this law is no longer binding on us. And Paul makes that expressly clear in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. Listen to what Paul says. Therefore... Let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink or with regard to festival. And you might put a note in there. That's yearly celebrations, okay? Or new moon. Well, you might put a note in there. That's talking about monthly celebrations of Israel. Or a Sabbath. The Sabbath are the weekly celebrations of Israel. So Paul says, don't let anybody bring a charge against you or pass judgment on you on whether or not you keep or don't keep the yearly, monthly, or weekly celebrations that were set aside for Israel. You remember Paul's in, in Romans, he had this dialogue about the weaker and the stronger brother, right? You, if you keep them, keep them at your own conviction that God's convicted you in your heart. That's what you ought to do. They're adiaphora, right? They, they, are, they are the peripheral things. You're not going to go to hell if you worship on Saturday, are you? No, all right? And you're not going to go to hell if you don't worship on Saturday, right? The point is you ought to worship the Lord. The, the Bible makes it clear in the New Testament, I think, that the, the worship of the Lord ought to be done on the Lord's day, on Sunday, in celebration of the resurrection. But Paul makes it clear, the ceremonial aspect of this law is not binding on us anymore. We don't have to worship on Saturday. We are free to worship the Lord and celebrate his resurrection on Sunday, which the church has done throughout history. And then that leads to this idea of the moral implications of the law because although these ceremonial aspects of the law have been fulfilled in Christ there are some there are at least two ideas or two moral principles i think that we need to talk about in relation to how we fulfill and honor this sabbath this fourth commandment one of those is the idea of work and worship because inherent in this commandment is the concept of work and worship. How do we think about those two things in the way that we honor this commandment? We'll break that down maybe just a little bit later. And the other idea is the pattern. One in seven. One in seven. God has declared to us that we ought to take one day out of seven days and we ought to set it aside to honor him. Right? So the rest of what we're going to do is going to kind of unpack this, these two moral implications, this pattern that God has set aside, one in seven, and this idea of work and worship. And you really could add rest to that, work, worship, and rest, and how we do that based on this pattern of one day uh, in seven. And now don't, don't pigeonhole ourselves to say that that only means that we worship and rest uh, in, in Christ or worship God one day a week. We're called to worship God every day, right? 
But in particular, God has says, you ought to come together as a group and worship me at least one day in seven. All right, and we'll, we'll talk more about that. So to help us understand those two moral implications, we need to unpack the, the root of the commandment, okay? Where is, what is this commandment rooted in? Well, we know it's a sign for Israel in that covenant, but Christ has fulfilled that. So where, where, where do we find these moral implications and how are they rooted in Scripture and what does it mean for us? Well, this commandment first is rooted in creation. Write this down, Genesis 2, 1 through 2. This principle, this moral construct, now I'm not saying that God said to Adam and Eve, you need to worship on Saturday. You won't find that in scripture. There's nothing in Genesis that would tell us that God demanded that they worship him on Saturday. But there is this moral principle and this pattern that God created in creation, which would imply that God would expect them to honor him and worship him. And it has to do with this work and this rest and this worship. And so look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. This is where God established this moral concept. Thus the heavens and the earth were filled in all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So the Bible tells us, Genesis chapter 2, God in six days created this earth and everything that was in it. And on the seventh day he Here's really the way to understand it. He ceased from his work. Because God don't get tired, right? There's no reason for him to physically need to, whew, I got to take a siesta, I got to take a nap, right? No, we do that, but not God. So there's got to be more to this idea of resting. God ceased from his labor on that day, and he has set a pattern for us. Now, let me ask you this. And again, I, I didn't get this. You, almost any, everybody you read or listen to that deals with the fourth commandment, brings up this idea of this seven-day week. And how do we come to the idea of a seven-day week? Kevin DeYoung in his commentary, Bodie Bauckham in his treatment of it, uh, Phil Johnson in his treatment uh, of it. Everybody deals with this idea because it's a, very, it's a very interesting aspect of the importance of this moral, or this moral uh, construct that God's given us in this commandment. Because, listen, if, if, if we put Brett out on a, you know, a deserted island out in the middle of the ocean, right? If he grew up out there all, all by his lonesome, okay? If Brett paid attention, he would begin to see a pattern in creation. He would see that it appears that this big ball of fire comes up on this side of this horizon, and it goes all the way to the other side. And while that's happening, it is bright outside. And then it gets dark when it goes down the other side of the horizon. Now, if he's astute and he pays attention, he will begin to see that that happens on a very regular basis. And he might even come up with the idea that that is a day, right? You think so? Sun comes up, sun goes down. Sun comes up, sun goes down. That happens every 
day, okay? <laughs> so you could come up with that concept. Now, if Brett was really astute and he paid attention while he's sitting on that island in the middle of the night, right, <clears throat> wondering what he's going to eat the next day, he will notice the moon, this big bright object in the night sky. And he will see that over time that that moon changes. Sometimes it's real big and looks real close. Then other times it's smaller and, you know, sometimes it looks like a crescent. And what he will begin to notice is that's a pattern. And that pattern happens on a regular basis. And since he's already determined that what a day is, he will say, hey, it takes about 30 of those days for this moon to make its way through all of these cycles. And he might even come up with the concept of a month, which is approximately 30 days, right? Now, Brett would have to be really astute, maybe to figure out the year, okay? I, I, you went to Tallahassee, so you might be a little better than, <laughs> little better than those who went to Eclectic. But Brett, if he was really paying attention, over time he would begin to realize that, hey, something happens with the weather, more than just on a daily basis, that there are certain times in the year that that big ball of fire looks like it may be closer or at a different angle. And in those times of the year, I feel warmer. And then there are times when the leaves begin to fall off the tree and that little ball doesn't put as much heat, right? And you go, you go through the cycles of the seasons. And he could come up with this idea of a year. But I don't care how astute Brett was, there's nothing in the heavens that would give him the concept of a seven-day week. How do we get that idea? How do people all over the world come to the conclusion that we ought to have a seven-day week? There have been people who've tried an eight-day or a nine-day, but almost everybody that you think about has come to a seven-day week. And there's nothing in the sky, there's nothing in the universe that says that we ought to have a seven-day week. How do we get that? Because God said so. That's how we get a seven-day week. God determined this pattern of six days of working and one day of rest. That's why, if you think about this fourth commandment, I've done a whole podcast on this before about the issue of evolution. Can you be a Christian, the question was, and believe in evolution? Well, the answer is you can be a Christian and believe in evolution, but you will be biblically incorrect. You know why? Because of the fourth commandment. You know, we have the big debate over Yom in, the, in Genesis chapter 1, right? Does Yom mean uh, a literal 24-hour day, right? And then you have all of these arguments where people say, hey, if it's got, an, if it's got an, a, a, a number attached to it, then it's always 24. And then you got people that go over to Peter and they say, no, a thousand days with the Lord. You know, a day is like a thousand days or whatever. So you can bring in this idea of millions of years. But you know what the fourth commandment that God gave to us assumes? The fourth commandment assumes a 24-hour day in creation. Isn't that what God says in this commandment? Huh? huh? Read, read, read with me again over in chapter 20. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but on the seventh day it is a Sabbath. Now, do you think God means, well, six periods of time, whatever you decide they are, you should work. And then on that seventh period of time, you ought to rest. 
No. God has in mind that on six 24-hour days you work and one 24-hour day you rest. Therefore, God, the one who wrote this, right? God who said all of these, spoke all of these words, says that in Genesis, I claim that those are 24-hour days. So God created this world and everything in it in six literal 24-hour days. That's what Scripture teaches. Now, if you want to believe all the other hullabaloo, you can. But you'll be contrary to what God says in the fourth commandment. So God has established this seventh day. So it's important. If God's the one who says, apart from the creation in the sense of the signs, he says, this is how you should live your life, one in seven. Well, it ought to be important to us that God has established that for us. And we ought to, we are to honor God in that way. And we'll talk about that in the last section. How do we apply this to our lives? How do we honor this one and this seven, right? Okay, so with that in mind, so this, this commandment is rooted in creation. But, but, you know, there is a parallel to the passage we're in in Exodus. The parallel to this passage is in Deuteronomy chapter 5. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, the second giving of the law, if you will, by Moses, God commanded him again to tell the people the tenets of this law. God lists through Moses these Ten Commandments. Now listen to what God says on this fourth commandment in Deuteronomy. He says, beginning in verse 12, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. So far, it sounds very similar to what we've already read. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. Sounds good. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to your God. On it, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your oxen or your donkey or your livestock or the sojourner who is in your gates. Almost word for word what we've read in Exodus. That that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Then comes verse 15. If we're over in Exodus, the Lord says, because... In six days, I created the earth and the sea and everything that was in it. And on the seventh day, I rested or ceased from my labor. Look at verse 15 in Deuteronomy. You shall remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. You see the difference? In Exodus, God rooted the Sabbath in creation, establishing that one in seven pattern, that moral aspect of work and worship and rest. But in Deuteronomy, God rooted the fourth commandment, the Sabbath day, in redemption because he redeemed Israel as slaves and brought them out as free people. And they honor God on this Sabbath day because of the redeeming work that God did for the nation of Israel. Isn't that powerful? So the Sabbath is rooted in creation and in redemption. 
And the Sabbath has this idea, yes, of work and rest and worship. But it ultimately points to this greater rest that we find in the person Jesus Christ, right? Because Jesus fulfilled the law of God. He didn't abolish it. He fulfilled it. And the way that Christ ultimately fulfilled the aspect of the fourth commandment is he became our Sabbath rest. And we ought to find our rest in him. <clears throat> Excuse me. So you need to understand, just like Israel was slaves, we were slaves. Listen to Romans 6, 17 through 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. God set us free in Christ Jesus. So our honoring of this Sabbath ought to be rooted not only in creation but in redemption. We ought to honor the Lord on the Lord's day because of the redemption that he has granted us in Christ Jesus. Not only that, it is a cessation of our work to try to get ourselves right with God. How do we honor God on the Sabbath? I'm getting ahead of myself. You and I need to understand we honor it by resting in Christ for our salvation. What did Paul tell us in Romans chapter 3? For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin, we could never make ourselves right before a holy God by doing the law. One, because we can't do it completely and perfectly all the time. We must rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Just like Jesus, or just like God finished his work in creation and he ceased from that work, Jesus in redemption finished the work on Calvary, and he ceased from the work required for redemption. And Jesus calls us to rest in him. Look at Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28, God says, or Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Hebrews three fourteen. For we have come to share in Christ, in this rest that is found in Christ, if indeed we hold our original uh, confidence firm to the end. Then Hebrews 4, 9 and 10. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God rested from his. Cease from your labor of trying to make yourself right with God and rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Because he sat down at the right hand of the Father after he said on the cross, it is finished. And that's where we find our rest for eternity. That's where we find our inner rest for this life that we live in today. So uh, what, what are the reasons for the fourth commandment? We don't have time. It's 1133 right now. We don't have time to do this. But in every catechism that you look at, every one of them, while they may differ a little bit, you know, they fall into those three groups we talked about on how we ought to uh, honor the, the Lord's day. Now, they may differ slightly on whether we do or don't do things. There is one thing that's always constant and consistent in every one of those catechisms is that we worship and we rest on the Lord's day. Now, again, they meet that out in different ways, but that's the fundamental principle of the Lord's day, that we worship and that we rest. One in seven. So 
Moving to the end, how do we apply it? And again, I'm going to have to do this very quickly, bullet point, got a whole page on how we apply it. <laughs> here's, here's essentially how we apply it. One, we ought to work. We ought to work. And now what God says in Exodus 20, he in six days created the earth and everything in it, the sea and everything's in it, and he rested from his labor. So inherent in this is the idea of work. You see, work, sometimes we think work is a part of the fall, right? We think work is part of the curse. But work came before the curse. Work came before the fall. What did God do with Adam? He planted a garden. He put him in the garden for the sole purpose of working in the garden. We ought to be a people who work. And we ought to work with all of our heart and all of our soul to honor God and not men. Right? What does Paul say when he is challenging some of the, uh, I think it's Corinthians where he says it's in my notes, but I don't have time to look there. He says to that church, listen, if a man doesn't work, he ought not eat. Well, that's pretty strong, isn't it? Biblically, we ought to be a people who work. That's how we honor the, the Lord in this moral principle of the Sabbath. We work and we work diligently for the Lord as unto the Lord. And then the second thing, what, we, what, ought we ought to, what ought we to do besides work? Well, we ought to rest. We ought to rest. Physically, we ought to rest, right? That's what the Lord did. He stopped his work. He ceased. We ought to cease. We ought to trust God enough to pause at least one day in seven and focus our life on him. And be regenerated by him. And we don't look at worship that way, do we? We don't look at worship because inherent in that rest is worship. We don't look at worship as, as, as a way to regenerate ourselves. All too often today we look at worship as something we have to do. But that's where we ought to get our rejuvenation for the week. Is that we get to come and worship together and worship the holy, true, and living God. And here's the problem. We, we, and again, I'm painting with a broad brush. All too often, we say we're believers. We're followers of Christ. And we ought to worship him. But what do we as a society teach our children? We teach them that soccer on Sunday is more important than worship. We teach them that baseball on Sunday is more important than worship. That's what we're teaching them. We may be saying one thing. But we're showing them that worship is just something you fit in whenever you get a chance. That's not what God intends for us. God's design for us was at least on one day to solely honor him. And in so doing, we are rejuvenated in our relationship with him, in our relationship with our family, as we trust him enough to provide for us. And set aside the physical labors of our life and honor him. Now, I'm not going to say you can't ride your bike on Sunday. You can't cook on Sunday. You can't go out to eat on Sunday. There's this whole idea that Jesus debunks in the Pharisees' understanding of the Sabbath, right? You can't walk. You know, that, this is the number one thing that the Pharisees got on Jesus about. 
Him and his disciples were, you know, threshing the wheat and, and eating the grain as they were walking on the Sabbath, and they got on him for that. Jesus, Jesus heals on the Sabbath. They get on him for that, right? Because for them, it was all about the do and the don't, right? The list, the checking, the Sabbat elevator, right? But Jesus says, listen, this Sabbath, I'm Lord of it, and I made it for you. And there's this element of necessity and mercy on the Sabbath. And didn't he say that to them? Which one of you, if your ox was in a ditch on the Sabbath, you wouldn't go get it out? That's necessity. Things you have to do, right? So we can do those things that we need to do for life. And for some people, that means, hey, I, I have to go to work this afternoon, right? That's necessity for you. Now, would it be great if we could order our lives in such a way that we wouldn't have to do that on a Sabbath, on a Sunday? Absolutely it would. That may take some intention on our part and some sacrifice on our part, wouldn't it? And that's something you have to wrestle with in your own heart with the Lord. And then there's these acts of mercy. Where is it in God's word that you shouldn't do good, especially on the day that you set aside to honor the Lord, right? We ought to do good things. And what is more good than spending time with your family, right? What is more good than honoring God with your family? So we ought to work, we ought to rest, and we ought to worship the Lord on the Lord's day. That's what God intends for us. That's what this fourth commandment means to us. It's not about the do's and the don'ts and I can't go and I can't do this or that. It's about honoring God by working in a Christian manner before the world, by resting and finding your rest in God, and by worshiping God and God alone. So, you know, that, I guess, is the invitation to us as believers. How is it that you're honoring the Lord today? How is it that you're honoring this fourth commandment and this principle of one in seven to the Lord today in your life? Is, does he take precedence in your life in general and especially on the day that we've set aside to worship him? If not, ask God to help you to honor him in this pattern of work and worship and rest on the Lord's day. And then what about those who are lost? And again, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but I would be insane to stand up here and think every person in this room is saved. Hopefully you are, but I don't know. So here's what God is saying to you, because remember, this law, this, this commandment is rooted in creation and redemption. So what is the Lord saying to those who are lost as it relates to this idea of rest and resting in Christ? He's saying to you, stop. Stop trying to work your way to heaven. Stop trying to work your way to righteousness because it's never going to work. He's saying rest in Jesus Christ because Christ finished the required work for redemption. Trust him. Come to faith in him. And in him you will find your rest. That's the invitation for those who are lost. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for this time we've had to be in your word and as always lord i never feel like i do an adequate job but it's not about me it's about you and i trust that you'll be true to your word when you say it never comes back void that it always accomplishes that which you send it out to do 
So Lord, through the person of the Holy Spirit today, you draw and convict and challenge and change and just help us to be faithful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.